Good evening. A different sort of New Year sweeps the globe on the heels of a pandemic. What's the scene in Times Square? Cops say they're looking for the Arlo Hotel Karen. The victim's father speaks out. And lessons for the left on New Year's Eve from a progressive rabbi. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2020. Pandemic restrictions made this the most unusual New Year's Eve in world history. Many people are bidding farewell to a year they'd prefer to forget. Instead of millions packed into city squares, the fireworks, and in New York City, the crystal ball drop will be on TV. In Australia, the traditional fireworks illuminated Sydney Harbor with its iconic opera house. Last year's million participants in Sydney were a distant memory. Melbourne didn't even have fireworks to discourage crowds from attending. In Seoul, South Korea, the city canceled its annual New Year's bell ringing ceremony for the first time since 1953, only months after the end of the Korean War. That didn't stop North Korea, claiming its coronavirus problem is under control to have a full-throated celebration complete with song. New Zealand has no coronavirus cases and they celebrated their usual New Year's. Celebrations were muted in China and Japan most stayed home. South Africa asked its citizens to cancel parties and in India bars were ordered to close early, well before midnight. France flooded streets with 100,000 police to enforce a nationwide curfew and Pope Francis skipped New Year's prayers entirely. And while there won't be crowds in Times Square, Mayor Bill de Blasio says he's delighted 2020 is over. New York City, this day is finally here. In less than 14 hours, it will be 2021. I could not be happier. I bet a lot of you feel the same way. We are so ready to kick 2020 out the door. And uh, I just am feeling totally energized that uh, the new year is going to be here and great things are going to happen. Tonight is going to be very special. Don't believe any doubting Thomases that say because there's not going to be a million people or more in Times Square that it's not going to be special. It's going to be actually arguably the most special, the most poignant, the most moving New Year's Eve. Everyone watch on television. Don't go down there. Watch from home. But it's going to be powerful. We're going to be honoring our healthcare heroes and first responders and folks who did amazing work this year, folks from the Cure Violence Movement who did great work this year, the people we truly have in our hearts because they're the folks who saw us through this year. And New Year's is often a time for folks to make resolutions to change bad habits or do something long desired and put off for too long. And Mayor de Blasio was no different as he made his resolution for 2021. The most important New Year's resolution I could possibly offer you in the month of January 2021, we will vaccinate a million New Yorkers, a million people we will reach in January. This city can do it. The amazing healthcare professionals of this city are ready. We're going to set up new sites all over the city on top of the many, many sites that are already operational. We're going to expand from our hospitals and our clinics to 
community clinics to locations we'll set up all over the neighborhoods of the city. Our goal is to get to upwards of 250 locations citywide. This is going to be a massive effort. This is going to be part of the largest single vaccination effort in the history of New York City. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take tremendous urgency and focus, and we will need help from the federal government. We will need help from the state government. We will need help from the vaccine manufacturers. With COVID infection rates at about 8%, New York is facing its long-awaited and dreaded second wave. The first in line to get the shots have been hospital workers on the front line. The mayor promised emergency workers would remain at the front of the vaccine line. I want to see all healthcare workers reached. I want to see all appropriate first responders reached. I mean, there's no question. The more people we reach, the faster, the better. It's just plain and simple. So we need, again, that cooperation all around to just smooth this out and make it simple. But we have amazing capacity in this city. The ability of New York City in general is legendary, but our healthcare world in particular showed us in 2020 they could do amazing things in this city. We have the tools. We simply need the right authorizations and we need the supply of vaccine and we can make it work. We have this very rigorous goal and within that goal is the ability to reach a huge number of healthcare workers and first responders and that's what I want to see happen. The mayor's last news conference of the year wasn't entirely about the coronavirus. He was asked about the incident last weekend at the Arlo Hotel in Soho where a young black man was falsely accused of stealing a woman's cell phone and then confronted by a hotel employee. The video of the incident has been viewed over a million times. phone is on. You on that right no, now. no, you can't. No. I'm the manager of the yes. hotel. I don't yes. care. He will. This right is my now. son. Hey, and Did you see me just come downstairs out of the yeah. elevator? Yeah, I'm trying to help, man. No, but you're not helping. I what am. you mean is disrespectful. No, I'm trying to settle this no. situation. We, I'm, I'm my son you. has nothing to do with her. No. I'm trying to figure yeah, out what's going on in the world. Then show me the proof. No. He's not leaving. Show me the proof. Are you Show kidding me? You gotta get on. Let's go, kid. Okay? I'm sorry. Get on. We have your, what you, you see. You see two black people. No, I'm not letting him walk away with my phone. Wait, 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 wait. Don't fight. Don't fight. Gotta get on somewhere. No, please get my phone back. I can't. I cannot. Not have my phone. Listen, get your phone. A newly released video of the incident, which is what you were hearing the sound from shows the woman tackling the boy from behind and pushing him to the ground at the Manhattan Hotel. The cops have been asking the public's assistance in finding the woman. K.N. Harold Jr., the 14-year-old son of jazz musician K.N. Harold, was headed to brunch with his father Saturday when he was accosted by the woman in the lobby of the Arlo Hotel, a boutique hotel in Soho. Harold Sr. said the humiliation of his treatment he and his son received in the hotel will hurt for a long time. Son and I, man... My son, take your time. you know, take your time. Take your time. the idea of trauma, the idea of trauma goes above any charge that could ever be had. I want my son to grow up whole. That's right. That's all we want. You know, I come from Ferguson and this has been my passport. This has been my passport to the world. And I can't even come downstairs in New York City. Prime New York City and just go get brunch without being attacked and wrongfully accused of something. Everybody's heard the term 
Let me see your papers. Let me see your papers. That's what happened to me. That's what happened to my son. And that needs to stop. Because I'm a whole human. My son's a whole human. And I want him to be a whole man. I want him to have that opportunity. So many of our young brothers haven't had that opportunity to, become, to, to first of all, live and become whole men. We've seen what happens to them. We see that. And not the fact that we see what happens to them. It's what we don't see. How many people end up in prison forever? How many people end up dead because of because of mistaken identity, quote unquote, because of wrongfully accused by so so many people wrongfully profiled? And this needs to stop. And this is literally a microcosm. If if if, if I wasn't who I was, thank God that He's given me the, the fortitude to do what I do on a high level, and I'm and I'm blessed in that way. Trumpet player Kayon Harold, whose son was accosted by a patron at the Arlo Hotel in Soho last weekend, Harold expressed himself with his instrument. Can Harold, Mayor de Blasio, whose wife Charlene is black, says the incident struck home because it could have happened to his own son. Yeah, this has to end. I have not seen the new video, but I'll tell you the bottom line on this. We've seen a series of things like this around the country. Um, it's almost become tragically comical how much you can rely on the fact that someone will unjustly accuse a young man of color in America. I mean, it's just crazy. It's very personal for me. I have a son of color uh, who is about as good a human being as you could possibly imagine, and yet I know he will be looked down on and disrespected throughout his life. And it's not fair, and it's not right, and it has to end. But it's also just, it's destructive. Uh, You know what? Think about this. And I had this experience as a father. What do you do as a parent? You try and give your child hope and faith and, and a belief in themselves, self-esteem, and that a sense of belonging. If you're a young black man or any young man of color in America and you're looked down on and treated like there's something wrong with you, how are you going to succeed? How are you going to believe in yourself? How are you going to believe your society is going to be fair to you? This, this is why we got rid of stop and frisk, the broken approach to stop and frisk that was used year ago, years ago, because it was denigrating to young people of color, certainly young women as well, but particularly young men of color. It was denigrating. It was taking away their self-esteem. How do you build a better city and a better country if you're robbing the majority of our people of their self-esteem? So uh, this just has to end. And the way for it to end is for every one of us to condemn it to not accept it in our personal lives. And when someone does something like this, they have to suffer consequences. And there needs to be uh, real action here by the criminal justice system to make sure there are consequences in this case. Mayor de Blasio, 
The Reverend Al Sharpton says he was attracted to the story because his dad could never have given him the gift Kayon gave to his son, a brunch in a fancy hotel. I thought about how I was one of those kids whose father never took him anywhere for Christmas. Never had brunch with my father. And for this black man to take his black son, put him in a hotel during a pandemic and spend Christmas with him. When Cat and him raising them, two award-winning musicians, and to be assaulted because of the color of their skin, I wanted to stand with this man and this woman. The woman's phone was never stolen, but was recovered by an Uber driver and returned the same day. The incident has evoked comparisons to other recent incidents involving false allegations lodged against people of color, including the now infamous video of a white woman calling the cops on a black bird watcher in Central Park. She was known in the tabloids as the Central Park Karen. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. President Donald Trump delivered a year-end video message today after returning early from vacation. The video highlights what Trump says is his administration's work to rapidly develop a vaccine against COVID-19 and rebuild the economy and make peace in the Middle East. And after years of endless foreign wars, we are signing historic peace deals in the Middle East. It's all ending in the Middle East. We have to hope it keeps going. It's so easy if you know what you're doing. In this season of joy, Americans have so much to be grateful for. We're all blessed to live in the greatest country ever to exist on the face of the earth, and we have made it greater than ever before. As long as we remain loyal to our nation, devoted to our citizens, and faithful to Almighty God, we know that the best is yet to come. God bless you, and God bless America. Trump's video comes as the United States is mired in the process of overriding Trump's veto of the defense spending bill, a surprise move coming with Trump's demand to overturn Section 230 of the 1996 Communication Decency Act, appoint a voter fraud commission, and increase stimulus payments to individuals from $600 to $2,000. Vermont Independent Bernie Sanders spoke again today, acknowledging that supporters of the increase don't have the 60 votes they need, but just want the opportunity to make their vote known. Two thirds of the House voted to make sure that working Americans were going to $2,000 check. Right here in the Senate, there are a number of Republicans, not clear how many, who have already gone public and saying they think it is a good idea that we go forward with the House bill. So all that I am asking Senator McConnell is Give us a vote. What is the problem? You could vote no. And by the way, we need 60 votes. A majority, no question to my mind, that a majority of the senators will vote yes. But because of House rules, we need 60 votes. So we're going to have to get 48 Democrats. That's what we got. Plus 12 Republicans. Can we get 12 Republicans? I don't know. Maybe we can. Maybe we can't. But give us a vote. What is the problem? What is the problem with having the American people see how their senators vote on this issue of such enormous importance? Now, as Senator Schumer indicated, Senator McConnell has some other concerns, concerned about Section 230 of the 1996 
uh, Federal Telecommunications Act. I'm sure that that is absolutely on the minds of everybody in Vermont, New York, and Kentucky, probably all that they're talking about. The 1996 Telecommunications Act, but fine. He wants to vote on that, bring it to the floor, let's vote on it as a separate bill. We want to talk about election security, Senator Schumer is right, a lot of issues out there. I'm concerned about voter suppression. I'm concerned about people waiting online five hours to cast the vote. I'm concerned about voter intimidation. Senator McConnell has different points of view. Let's have that discussion. Put together a commission. No problem. Bring that bill to the floor. But everybody understands that when you combine all three elements, this is a poison pill designed to kill that legislation. So after everything is said and done, all of this comes down to one simple fact. Will Senator McConnell, the Republican leader of the U.S. Senate, allow this body to vote on a bill which will provide $2,000 per person to working class families all across this country? That's what this whole debate is about. It's not whether you like the bill or you don't like, we can have that debate. We've got three days left in this Congress. The House did the right thing. It's now time for the Senate to have that vote. So, Madam President, I ask unanimous consent that at 3 p.m. today, Thursday, December 31st, the Senate proceed to the consideration of calendar number 645, H.R. 9051, to provide a $2,000 direct payment to the working class. That the bill be considered read a third time in the Senate vote on passage of the bill, and that if passed, the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table. Further, that following the vote on H.R. 9051, the Senate resume consideration of the veto message on H.R. 6395, the National Defense Authorization Act, and the Senate vote on passage of the bill. The objections of the President to the contrary notwithstanding, all with no intervening action or debate. Is there objection? Object. Objection is heard. Senator Bernie Sanders, the editor of Tikkun magazine, is Rabbi Michael Lerner. He says Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign was frustrated by more moderate Democrats because he thinks the left is too hung up on its own internal divisions. Need to address people's hunger for meaning and purpose, for love and kindness and generosity, for living in a world in which the highest goal is to not to maximize your money and power, but to maximize the capacity of people to be loving and caring, kind and generous, ethically and environmentally sensitive, and able to treat other human beings as embodiments of the sacred, and able to look at the earth with awe, wonder, and radical amazement. The absence of that in the left is a lesson that should be brought forward into the next years, because until the left is able to address that dimension of human needs, we will continue to lose to the centrists in the Democratic Party who are really indistinguishable from what used to be the Republican Party. You had the QAnon, you had the rise of ultra-religious right wing that supported a Trump who was anything but a religious person. He seemed to just do what people wanted and he didn't really practice it. What do you think is going on spiritually in America that this kind of thing can be taking hold? People are feeling desperate and they're feeling demeaned. They've, they're engaged in deep self-blaming. But the only place they get that message 
it's not your fault is in the the right wing churches. The right wing churches welcome everybody and give a great they give a great deal of loving attention to the people inside their community. They really are caring communities. They're caring for themselves. But then they say to people, "You're not to blame." But who is to blame? Well, the uh, the reason why your life isn't working is because of. African-Americans, people of color in general, gays and lesbians, feminists, immigrants, Jews, and the list goes on. All liberals, all progressives. So uh, people absorb that and are willing to buy that. And if that's the cost that they have to pay in order to be in a place when they're given love and caring. But now if you go to a political meeting of the liberal and progressive world, you find people fighting with each other. There's no time in which people stop and say, okay, now we want to get to know each other. We want to affirm each other. We want to find out what everybody here needs and see how we can get together collectively address some of those needs beyond just saying we need to change the system. In other words, we need a left that is able to care for each other on an individual basis while simultaneously engaged in the struggle to change the economic and political system. So as a psychotherapist, I engaged in a long-term struggle to understand why people are moving to the right. And very often, the people who we interviewed, and and there were thousands of middle-income working people that we interviewed, told us that's because they felt put down by people on the left, put down in part because their religious sentiments were dismissed as stupid and irrational. Now you may feel that way, you're allowed to feel that way, but you don't have to make, you don't have to put people down because they have a different view than you of that religion. But the left has had a hostility towards all religion and that's a big mistake. Um, And instead we need to ask ourselves, what is legitimate and what people are wanting? And we can win a lot of people away from the, the extreme reactionary. That's not to say that, that I believe, um, I believe that about at least a good half of the people who are Trump voters actually have fallen into a deep racism, um, and, uh, sexism and anti-Semitism and xenophobia, et cetera, that will not be moved very in the short run. But there are a lot of other people who are there voted for Obama in the past. Look, all these issues are ones that I discuss and with uh, my partner and uh, Kat Zavis in our weekly podcast called Imagine With Us. And Rabbi Michael Lerner is editor of Tikkun Magazine. His podcast, Imagine With Us, is available through most podcast providers. And finally, Alan Camfora, one of the nine wounded student survivors of the May 4th, 1970 shooting at Kent State University, has died. As a 21-year-old junior at Kent State University, Camfora was one of hundreds of anti-war students who protested Nixon's invasion of Cambodia. His sister is Chick Camfora. She joins us live from Ohio. Welcome to WBAI. I am Alan's sister and was present with him in 1970, when we both survived the shootings at Kent State. So um, that doesn't make me any less close to my brother or any less devastated than everyone in our family is that we lost him this week after a short illness. And uh, he was an icon in the anti-war movement and in student movement and education around the Kent State tragedy for the last 50 years. What was it like that day 50 years ago? Well, 
not so different from today. If you are wondering about the political climate, I do think in some ways we have a more volatile situation with Trump in office than we did with Nixon. But the parallels are no less striking that on a sunny day um, in May during a peaceful anti-war protest at Kent State, American soldiers turned their guns on American people. Um, it, it, it was met with outrage, but not enough outrage to ever hold any guardsmen accountable for um, the killing of four students and wounding of nine students um, in an incident that every investigation, even Nixon, Scranton Commission, and FBI um, report concluded the shootings were unnecessary, unwarranted, and inexcusable. Now, and when that, you were there and your brother was shot, how did you know? Did you, were you next to him when he was shot? Did you see that happen? No. It, the, the iconic photo of Alan that is in the news a lot today in his passing with him walking toward the guardsmen with the black flag. There, a lot of the, the historical books also show me uh, coming up to him and saying, come back to the parking lot because it was clear they were aiming right at my brother. And just as Troop G got up to what we thought was leave the area, the last words my brother said to me before he was shot was, wait, I just want to see where they're going. Um, of course, history shows they went up the hill. We thought they were leaving, but they surprised us when they reached the top, turned and started firing. Um, I was well, in the parking how, how did that affect your brother's life? How did that affect his life from that point on? He was already had a black flag, so he was pretty much already into the movement. But how did, what effect did that have on him? What happened that day? And you as well. Well, the, the, the anti-war movement had an effect on all of us because our friends were fighting and dying there. Um, Nixon ordered an escalation into Cambodia. That affected us and made us more militant in our actions to end the war. And then once we were shot down at Kent State in what is seen in history as the day when our constitutional rights were put to one of their greatest tests, our lives were changed again because we have spent, um, for many of us, 50 years educating people about that use of excessive force during peaceful um, uh, civil unrest. And uh, we have worked for Cairo Street for now 50 years to make sure that those commemorations every year continue so we can learn the right lessons from that. It made him an activist. I mean, he already was, but he continued pretty much as an activist his entire life in one way or another. Absolutely. In fact, our hometown newspaper in Barberton today had probably one of the best and most thorough articles about his lifetime of service, his volunteerism, um, his as head of the Democratic Party in Barberton, Ohio. No Republican ever won under his watch, and he was the go-to guy for, for all of the Democratic politicians. But when I talked with a reporter who was asking about, you know, Allen's protest against Governor Taft when he came in. I told him he was equally hard in his political work on Democrats as Republicans uh, and held them all accountable if they weren't serving the poor and the working class of Barberton and Summit County. So he had a, a life of activism his entire life, probably inspired by my father, who was a city councilman and labor leader. All right, we have to go in a moment, but I want to ask you one last question. Why is his nickname Darth Vader? I don't know that name. <laughs> I was wondering because one of his friends said, referred to him as my old friend Darth Vader, and I was wondering if there was a story behind that. But thank you very much no for your time. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Thank you, All Chick right. Camphora, brother of Alan Camphora, who was one of the students at Kent State who was wounded. He has died uh, just a few days ago. 
Uh, sorry to hear that, but enjoy your New Year as best as possible. Thank you so much. And that's some of the news for Thursday, December 31st, 2020. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. Did a great job. Thank you so much for being there, Reggie. From New York City on New Year's Eve, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening and have a happy, healthy New Year.